HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street, where brunch is now being served for those of you in the area. My guest today on the phone is Marin McKenna. This is another person, another one of these people, another one of these guests that makes me feel really bad about myself. Listen to this. Listen to her bio. Marion McKenna is an independent journalist and author who specializes in public health, that's why she's on my show, global health and food policy. And she is a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. She is a blogger for Wired. I'm reading only just one fraction of this incredible bio. A columnist and contributing editor for Scientific American and writes frequently for national and international magazines, including Self, The Atlantic, Nature, The Guardian, and more. Her work has also appeared in Health, China Newsweek. Uh, did I say that right? Health, China Newsweek. Yes. Okay. MSNBC.com, CNBC.com, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post. So you can believe everything she says. And I also want you to know that she is the author most recently of Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA, uh, which was published uh, two years ago by Free Press or three years ago on the international epidemic of drug resistant staff in hospitals, families, and farms, which won the 2011 Science in Society Award. I could have spent the entire um, program reading this woman's bio. Um, welcome to the program, Marin. Thank you so much for joining me. And now everybody. Hi, can- thanks for having me. <laughs> now everybody can, like, really, you know, just sit at home and cry into their coffee about the fact that they haven't done anywhere near as much stuff as you have or anywhere near as cool. So now you, let's just jump right into this because you just published an investigative piece in the Atlantic and on Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which is one of my favorite vehicles for information. Um, tell us about the um, about the article and so, what inspired Katie, I'm you. I'm so sorry to say I'm having trouble hearing you, but oh, no. uh, let me tell you about this investigation. Sure. So, um, as you said in that very kind introduction, thanks so much. Um, <laughs> I my most recent book was about antibiotic resistance, and it. I started out looking at this one particular organism called MRSA. Some people know it as drug resistant staph or methicillin resistant staph, which started out in hospitals and then kind of moved into the everyday world. There were two overlapping epidemics, and as I was studying that, I realized there was a third 
epidemic, which involved MRSA in farm animals. That got me interested right. in the whole area of to what degree is antibiotic use in agriculture causing antibiotic resistance as opposed to antibiotic use in human medicine. I started watching the literature, looking at what researchers were publishing, and I started to see this thread of paper after paper that had been going on for more than a decade at that point that said that there was another sort of burgeoning epidemic, and that was primarily connected to chickens and with the organism E. coli, which is one of the most common organisms on the planet. It's in the guts of every warm-blooded thing, including us and including chickens. And more and more people were noticing that there were antibiotic-resistant strains of E. coli that were causing urinary tract infections, um, which is one of the most common infections we have in the United States every year. There's millions of them, and they cost up to a billion dollars in healthcare spending. Okay. So our investigation at Fern traces that connection from antibiotics through chickens and into everyday people, primarily women. Absolutely. I mean, I think women should be listening up because there's probably not a woman listening right now who hasn't had her share of UTIs. Um, so one of the things that they discovered in this um, investigation is that, because we all know that when you, uh, you know, antibiotic resistant bugs do not come from actually eating the meat, especially if you cook it enough. They come from either handling it or some other means. Um, so, and one of the things that you discovered is that they term this E. coli uh, resistant um, uh, uh, bacteria as as XPEC or exterior to the uh, intestinal system or the gut system, right? So how how does that work? That's Tell us right. about what so XPEC is. Explain X-Pec what that means. Stands for extra intestinal pathogenic E. coli. Thank you. But e. coli is a, a gut bug, as you say. It lives in the guts of every warm blooded thing. But as all, any woman and some men who've had UTIs can uh, testify, sometimes those E. coli get out of the gut and into the urinary system. Mm-hmm. And that tends to happen in women more than men just because anatomically the, the distance between the two is Absolutely. shorter in women than it is in men. Yeah. So that's really serious. I mean, it, any UTI can potentially be serious if it doesn't just stay in the bladder but starts to kind of climb backward up the body. Um, it goes from the bladder up to the kidneys. The kidneys are what filter the blood. It gets into the bloodstream, and it can become a very serious and, in some cases, life-threatening infection. Absolutely. The problem is because UTIs are also so incredibly common, most people and most doctors kind of know what to do for them. You know, you, you, maybe for a day or two you try your cranberry juice or vitamin C or whatever your home remedy is. Then you go to the doctor. The doctor says, oh, yeah, those symptoms sound like a UTI and gives you an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. They don't tend to actually take a a screen of the bacteria that might be making you sick. They do what's called empirical treatment. Mm -hmm. They know what the symptoms are. They know what disease that indicates. They give you the common antibiotic. The problem is more and more of these UTIs have been becoming antibiotic resistant to such a degree that just very recently the main organization for infectious disease physicians actually said, you know, we shouldn't do empirical treatment anymore. But if you've been treated empirically, if you've gotten one of the common antibiotics and it happens that you have a resistant bug, then it's effectively as though your infection has gotten, gone untreated. And it can start that climb up through your kidneys, into your bloodstream, causing very serious illness while you think you're being made better and you're not. And meanwhile, you're also developing your, your, those uh, E. coli organisms are morphing into something uh, increasingly resistant to any antibiotics. Isn't that so? 
I mean, the more you treat with antibiotics, the more the, the pathogen resists or selects for pathogens that can survive that particular antibiotic. And that's what's making this so tricky, I think. That's absolutely true. And that's yeah. what we see in this research that's been going mm-hmm. on over, you know, more than a decade now that when actually, if you go back to what the research that really started people thinking about this, which was a cluster of resistant UTIs that actually happened on a college campus in California back in the early 90s, um, people have seen that there's increasing resistance in these very common bugs. And it took them quite a while to realize that what was going on was not just sort of random resistance that was well distributed through the population for the reasons that you're referring to, but that there might actually be a tie to something specific. And there's this series of sets of research that says that really what maybe what ties it together is food. Yeah. So to, let's go back to the fact that, that since nobody eats raw chicken and that there is no antibiotic residue in the actual meat itself. So how do these ARMs get transferred to humans? Is it is it you right. know, is it handling chicken? Is it um, I don't know consuming undercooked chicken? Like what what's happening with that? How does that work? So it- So think for a minute about where these bacteria are in a chicken. They live in the chicken's guts. And so when we turn a chicken into chicken meat, when we slaughter the chicken, we take it apart and we take the guts out in the very high-speed processing of chicken that most chicken in the United States is produced under, which I think you had a guest talk about back in December. Oh, I sure did. Um, 172 birds per minute, people, per minute. Amazing, right? So that that can get kind of sloppy, and one of the things (laughs) that can happen is that the contents of the guts of the chicken get on the chicken meat. Now, you know, people who work in the industry will say, well, that shouldn't matter whatever's on the chicken meat because people should take it home and they should cook it thoroughly. And that's correct. People should do that. Mm -hmm. However, we do all kinds of things in public health that acknowledge that people are not always perfect in their behavior. The people, you know, people don't always eat the right things, people don't always use condoms, and people don't always cook their birds perfectly, or their burgers for that matter. And they also don't run their kitchens at home as though they were laboratories that needed to be kept scrupulously clean. So if you don't cook that chicken absolutely to the resemblance of a board, killing all the bacteria, (laughs) or if you, you know, happen to handle that chicken and then don't immediately wash your hands or happen to let some of the chicken blood or juice get onto your cutting board or onto your counter, it can also, the bacteria that are carried on it can also get onto things that you also might not be cooking to death, like lettuce, for instance. Yeah. So there's just a, there's a hazard in the way we live our lives, which is that we're not perfect in all our behaviors, that puts us at risk. And when what my concern is that when people say, oh, well, if people just did X, they'd be perfectly safe, we are putting a big burden on the consumer when we could be pushing back further up the stream of production and saying, maybe we could reduce the risk here so that it's not always the consumer's fault when it goes wrong. Well, I think some of the new Food Safety Modernization Act, some of the new regulations that have just been uh, are just being implemented now um, kind of does do that, particularly in the um, in the produce sector. I'm sure you've read about that. 
you know, in the res- as, as a result of that whole melon uh, outbreak of, um, I don't know whether it was E. coli or salmonella. I think it was salmonella. Um, it was the same kind of thing. It's like now they're putting the onus more on the farmer than they are on the, um, on the consumer to wash thoroughly with an antibacterial or something like that, which is really an unrealistic thing. And I might add that um, I'm just going to go off on a tangent here for a second. Um, I read a lot about the, the meat industry and I read a lot of their trade blogs, um, as I think you know, Marin. And, um, <laughs> and one of the things that I repeatedly see uh, in the comments section of any article, as particularly dealing with a foodborne illness uh, outbreak, is that the onus, as far as the industry is concerned, and as far as a lot of the people who are involved in raising cattle or raising chickens or whatever, it's very much about pushing the uh, responsibility onto the consumer rather than accepting or acknowledging any responsibility at farm level or at production level. So um, to go back to this uh, to the trade blog thing, um, a recent uh, two-part series in Meeting Place, which is my favorite trade blog, actually, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, one of their bloggers um, explains the following about antibiotic use in food animals. And this, this I think, is really interesting because one, many of my, I've done a lot of programs about this now, and many of my guests come on with that, you know, 80% of antibiotics produced in the United States, uh, you know, is gone into the livestock industry, yada, yada, yada. And he breaks it down in a way that, you know, just kind of, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this, to be honest with you. So that's why I'm asking you this question. So let me read you the quote. 70% of antibiotics sold for use in food-producing animals account for 1% of all antibiotics used in human medicine. Two classes of critical importance to human medicine, the cephalosporins, which were recently banned from animal... If I'm not mistaken, they were banned from animal use. Um, The cephalosporins and the fluoroquinolones are number two and number four in sales by weight for human and together account for 24% of human health, but only 0.3% of total antibiotics sold for animal use. So what he's saying essentially is that you know, the animal husbandry or uh, livestock ag is simply not using enough of human medicines to make this uh, an issue. And really, he's putting the blame back on doctors um, and overprescription of of uh, antibiotics in the public sector. So what do you think of I mean, what do you think of what he's saying here? What, what was what did your research show you that might might differ or might con- uh, conclude the same as what um, this particular writer said? So I think there's a couple of different issues in what you just said. The first is, is it only agriculture's fault? And, and should we hold human medicine responsible? And the answer to that is absolutely we should hold human medicine responsible as well. The, the vast growth, the rapid rise in antibiotic resistance makes it really clear that in all the areas in which we use antibiotics, we overuse them. Now, to, just to be precise here, you know, antibiotic resistance is an inevitable biological process. It's yeah. the thing that bacteria do to defend themselves against each other. What we call antibiotics started out as lab copies of compounds that bacteria make to, to attack each other. We took those things into you know, to, to clear out living space, to make room for their descendants, to compete for food sources. We took those compounds, initially discovered by Alexander Fleming when he looked at a speck of penicillin mold that had landed on a, a lab plate of staff and discovered that around the mold the staff had died. We took those in, into the lab. We copied them and made them better and made second and third and fourth generations of them, and we called them antimicrobials. So, yes, we do 
overuse antibiotics in human medicine for all kinds of reasons, having to do in some cases with medical um, pressures and in some cases with really more kind of social pressures, like having to get your kid into daycare to go to work because you don't have a sick leave at your job. But, and we need to reduce that. And, and we need to reduce it because the third part of the equation is that we don't have good antibiotics coming out of the drug development pipeline anymore because since resistance moves so rapidly, pharma companies no longer want to make them. They can't make money off them. But and agriculture represents another place where these drugs are used really freely with, in fact, less veterinary oversight than, uh, than happens in in comparatively speaking, in human medicine, where you actually have to get a prescription. Uh, the past couple of years, I lived in Minnesota, you know, not far from farming areas, and people would tell me, oh, yeah, you know, we used to go to Canada to buy cheaper antibiotics, but now we've realized all we need to do is to go down to the feed store, and we can do the same thing. Oh, it's in the so, feed. They actually put it in the feed as part of the... In the some mix. cases, they are. It's absolutely. put in feed by feed mills, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in some cases, antibiotics are dispensed in water. So, the, the uh, I believe that the blog that you were referring to is using numbers that are about the only numbers that we have made public about how much antibiotics and what kinds of antibiotics are used by in. in um, veterinary medicine and, and are used in feed and as growth promoters and, and for therapeutic dosing and things like that. And it is technically correct that within those numbers, they, they're only, they're very, it's a very small set of numbers and we've only had them for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, the FDA only started collecting them in 2008. And within those, all we know is the individual categories of types of drugs, sort of drug families. And one big drug family is a, a family of drugs that are not used in human medicine. Ex- I, maybe the ionophores. Once in a while, they're called ionophores. Right, right. And I think that's what that blog you're talking about is referring to. But, you know, to turn this around for a minute, even if it's only a few percent, if we have evidence that that few percent is causing antibiotic resistance that's moving off farms, that's moving to people as a result of agricultural products, that seems to me to be worthwhile paying attention to, not just because it makes individual people ill, and we have a, you know, fairly good evidence now, um, both individual descriptions by individual patients and also sort of population-level data, that, that this is happening, but also because the way that antibiotic resistance works is that those genes that are conferring resistance move around from organism to organism, and they tend to associate it, to move around with other genes that cause other kinds of antibiotic resistance in in sort of mobile genetic elements that hop from bacterium to bacterium. Mm. So once we allow those things to emerge and to move out into the world, we have no way of knowing where they're going and or how much illness they're causing. So it just seems, as a precautionary principle, if we want to invoke that, that it would be a good idea to dial back on it from the start to keep that process from getting out of control. 
Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, which is why I keep investigating this uh, further and further. But um, to, to play devil's advocate for a second, um, from the point of view of industry, um, and this is livestock across the board because they all use uh, antibiotics uh, both as growth promotants, both as uh, sub-therapeutic to keep their flocks or herds healthy. And then, of course, they dose them when they do become sick. And so what's happened in the last couple of years is the FDA, which has been legislating since 19, or has been trying since 1977 to dial this usage back. Um, I'm sure you know all this, but I'll just recap it for the listeners. Um, they finally just threw up their hands in despair. And two years ago, they they uh, they outlined guidelines for the pharmaceutical industries and for farmers um, to you know start voluntarily reducing the amount of antibiotics in feed in water. That's the subtherapeutic growth promoting aspect of it and try to use them only for and also force them to use prescriptions rather than just, as you described earlier, this kind of freehanded, just like, you know, throwing it in wherever you want to. And and to their from their point of view, it keeps their herds healthy and it keeps um, it makes them grow faster. So they make more money on them because they're not the feed, conversion to feed to meat happens faster. So how do you tell an industry that is probably got a pretty sh- small margin of profit anyway, that they have to dial back on this use, which they think is completely legitimate and uh, accept a lower payday at the end of the game, right? I mean, it's a very I think hard... Just, I think you've just put your finger on the, the real conundrum at the heart of this. And yeah. the real conundrum at the heart of this is that the pressures that keep antibiotics being used in the manner that they're now used in largest scale agriculture are pressures of razor thin economics yeah, absolutely. for the producers. That is to say for the producers of the animals. You know, what's going on in the economics of the bottom lines of the producers of the drugs themselves is quite different. But, <laughs> yeah, they're laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, with this kind but, of practice, you think pharmaceuticals are ever going to voluntarily uh, you know, withdraw their feed from from food products? You know, I think this, whether the FDA's voluntary, um, uh, you know, request that, that, that producers start voluntarily cutting back, this is a really open question. Um, because, now, you know, I think if you, if, you, if you talk to people in the industry, if you sort of eavesdrop on blogs, you'll see a lot of people saying that that most microdose use, the growth promoter use that makes animals put on weight faster and therefore sort of be able to be sold quicker so that you can move more animals through in a given period of time, that that's what the FDA most wants to control. That's right. And people are saying, you know, those probably are going out of use. Public opinion is turning against them. The, the question that has yet to be answered is, how much are things truly going to not be used and how much are things just going to be redefined? Our goalposts just going to be moved, and we just don't have enough information at that at this point to know because we don't have good information except for those few usage numbers that the FDA has put out about what's going into the the agriculture part of the pipeline and and what's coming out. We don't have good surveillance at the back end for um, for resistant organisms. We don't have good numbers at the front end for what's being used for any further breakdowns than just those big categories of drug family. So are, are things going to actually stop? Are they just going to be redefined? Is there going to be a new category that suddenly we, we didn't know about before? The answer to all of that is more transparency, and transparency is the thing that has been most lacking 
in this right from, as you referenced, since 1977, yeah. when the FDA first said, we really need to, to dial back on this. And congressman after congressman over years said, you know, we really think you need to go back and study this some more. Um, so, <laughs> you know, what we need is just we need more data, and we need public breakdown and acknowledgement of what the data is. And, and then maybe we'll be able to make some more informed decisions about what the public health impact of this really might be. Yeah, I agree. And then I'm also thinking that the other part of this is that the consumer must be educated that they have to pay a little bit more. And that's and that's what industry comes back to again and again. It's like we have the biggest, cheapest meat supply in the world, and that's true. And it's because we use subtherapeutic antibiotics to make our animals grow faster. And, um, and that's why we can charge so little money for our meat. So until the consumer is willing to acknowledge that they will pay a few pennies more per pound, then these guys are kind of like stuck in that bind there, don't you think? It's a little bit of a rock and hard place for them because their margin is really small. Um, consumers are screaming when they raise the price of anything. And there's really, there's no incentive essentially for them because they're not, even unless they get MRSA <laughs> off their pigs or something like that, which is happening more and more, um, you know, there's no real incentive for the farm, uh, for the farming community, especially the the producers, uh, you know, the production side of it um, to make those they're the guys who do their cow really calf difficult. stuff. It's a really, it's really difficult hard question. It is. Um, you know, as a, you know, as you and I both do. If you, if you, you know, if you read the industry blogs and publications, you'll see people coming into comment streams who say, you know, we are meat producers, but we don't do it the way you're describing. You know, we have moved away from growth promoters. We involve veterinarians. We only use antibiotics when our animals are sick. And if we're an organic producer, then once we use antibiotics, we move that that treated animal out of the herd. Right. We're really trying to be good. But it's, a, as you say, it's a lot more expensive to do that. I've been watching this. I live in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I'm less than an hour from what's considered the heart of broiler chicken production in the United States. Oh, yeah, you are. And uh, I've been watching this locally because there's a movement in Georgia to, to try to move chicken producers toward pasturing, which is sort of way beyond free range, where they're actually out there in pastures. It's a, it's a truly old-fashioned style of chicken raising right. that relies much less on antibiotics. Well, pastured chicken is inevitably more expensive. It's more labor-intensive. Sure. They lose more birds um, as the birds are growing up because they're, sub- they're vulnerable to predators and they might be vulnerable to diseases that some of the antibiotics might have protected them against. And people think that this is a great idea. But when you ask people, are you willing to pay another dollar a pound for your chicken, then they suddenly start to change their minds. Absolutely. And, and that is a really difficult conversation to have uh, because it instantly gets us into the, the whole larger questions for the good food movement of, are, is, do we have to bring a class-based analysis to it? Is, is good food, is properly produced food only something that people with a lot of money can afford? And of course, we all want to say no. But if we want this, we, if we want improvements and changes to continue, then we have to say that the producers are going to be able to make a living wage out of it. And that is a point where people are, are really having trouble right now. Yes, I agree. I think that's absolutely the crux of this whole issue. And unfortunately, Marin, we can't even get to the rest of my many, many questions. <laughs> You'll have to come back because you're a wonderful guest. Um, I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to, you know, talk about your blog, your website, your other articles, things that you produce, you know, where you're going to speak, anything like that. Go ahead. Oh, superb. That's so kind of you. Thank you. So I am a blogger for, for 
wired.com in their Wired Science Network. And it's a long URL, but it's wired.com slash wired science slash superbug. Um, I'm a columnist for Scientific American where we often talk about these issues. Um, as you said, I wrote a book about antibiotic resistance, also called Superbug. People want to know more about me or see some of my work. It's all up, including... Um, uh, including when we get a sound file for this, I'll put it, put it up on, on my website. It's right. marinmckenna.com. And, um, and I love to hear from people. There are links on all of those uh, sites that I just mentioned at my blog, at um, my personal site, at Scientific American, where they can contact me. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm marinmck, M-A-R-Y-N-M-C-K. And um, I'm very interested in hearing people's opinions on these really thorny questions. They are really thorny. So I hope you'll come back and talk about them again with me um, in the future. And do keep me posted about, yeah, that'd be great. And keep me posted on anything that you're writing and publishing. I mean, I'm, I'm always glad to have an expert like you on. So thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you to my sponsor. And thank you to my engineer. And next week, my friends, we'll be talking with Michael Dimon of Sea to Table. He's been a guest in the past. Um, he's a guy who runs a company that brings fish straight from the boat to your plate, basically. Um, he He's going to join me to talk about where all the oil has gone after the British petroleum spill in the Gulf. Haven't you been wondering what happened to that? Anyway, thanks so much for tuning in today, and we'll see you next week. Again, this is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and have a great week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.